Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We're recording this on Monday, December 18th, 2023. In this week's episode, uh, we're doing something a little bit different. We take a hard look at the alleged blurred lines between fact and fiction in the widely popular Netflix docuseries, Making a Murderer. Focusing on the misadventures of Manitowoc County, Wisconsin resident Stephen Avery, the highly praised documentary caused many to believe that Avery had been wrongfully convicted for the brutal slaying of Teresa Hallback. While the narrative of a once exonerated inmate again being wrongfully convicted by the same authorities and judicial system made for a great story, was it the whole truth? Today, we are joined by director Sean Reck, who, along with producer Brenda Schuler, are the creative force behind the true crime documentary series Convicting a Murderer. The series takes a deeper look at this case of Stephen Avery unveiling controversial details that were left out of Netflix's monumental documentary series, Making a Murderer. Sean, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. Um, I'm just going to do a very short introduction as to what the background was on all of this uh, for listeners who may not have watched the original Netflix series or haven't had an opportunity to see your documentary series, but I'm sure you'll fill us in on more details later. But basically, we're talking about in late 2015, Netflix's Making a Murderer caught the attention of viewers across the globe, chronicling the investigation and eventual conviction of Stephen Avery and his nephew, Brendan Dassey, for the 2005 murder of photographer Teresa Hallback. At the time of Hallback's murder, Avery was pursuing a $35 million lawsuit against the county sheriff's office and district attorney for a wrongful conviction on rape charges, which had kept Avery in prison for 18 years. The creators of Making a Murderer explored what they contend were inconsistencies and flaws in the men's convictions, suggesting that Avery and his 16-year-old nephew were the victims of a corrupt system and prejudiced law enforcement officials. They claimed the documentary also proved to be more than just a cultural binge watch, spurring real efforts to overturn the convictions for both men. After the documentary aired, Avery enjoyed a tremendous increase in public support, including from politicians and celebrities calling for a reinvestigation and even for Avery's release. 
However, as entertaining as Making a Murderer was, the series also faced sharp criticism for its perceived one-sided presentation of the facts of the case. Netflix and the filmmakers faced a defamation lawsuit from a detective in the case, and the district attorney who prosecuted the case authored a book about what the series had gotten wrong. Sean, fascinating story i mean however people come out on this and i know that they're very divided on the whole thing it's it, it is a fascinated story but i'm i'm curious tell tell me i know you're a documentarian tell me a little bit about your background and how it came along that you got involved in this pot project well, my background i started in this business about 15 years ago uh, making shows called crime stoppers case files they were regionalized shows um, we had one in uh, Dade County, Florida. We had one in L.A. County um, with my good friend, uh, Under Sheriff Todd Rogers. Um, we had one in Chicago, and we had one here where I live in Cleveland. Uh, those shows collectively helped solve 10 murders and put 13 people away. We did that for, for a long time. Uh, they were very effective, got great ratings, won nine Emmys, but uh, they didn't make much money. So we decided to, to pivot, as they say, into, into filmmaking. So um, we, uh, we made our first documentary called A Murder in the Park, which was about the wrongful conviction of Al Story Simon. And the, the, the crazy twist in the case was that he was wrongfully convicted by the Innocence Project of Northwestern <laughs> University, meaning they uh, secured a confession from him in order to uh, halt the impending death penalty against Anthony Porter, who's going to die 48 hours later. It's a fascinating story. I remember being in the software business, just reading about it on Drudge Report and thinking, wow, this is crazy uh, that they actually caught the real guy. And it turns out that they, they didn't catch the real guy, that his confession was allegedly made at gunpoint. Um, and uh, he ended up eventually being released and, and uh, Porter you know, couldn't be recharged because of double jeopardy. And he ended up, you know, dying uh, sometime later. But, uh, you know, our guy got out. Um, the second movie I made was uh, about Richard Worshey Jr., who was uh, convicted as a teenager in the 80s of having over 650 grams of cocaine. They had something in Michigan called the 650 Lifer Rule. Back when everybody was throwing their hands up and they didn't know what to do about the crack epidemic, they, they decided to... Uh, just give everybody a life sentence who had anything to do with uh, high quantities of cocaine. So this juvenile nonviolent offender was a grandfather and 50 some years old in, in prison. And we finally uh, shed some light on that case and helped some of his supporters who had been working for years to get him out. And he finally was, was released. But I watched Making a Murderer, okay, as a, as a fan and as a documentarian. I invested 10 hours of my life in it, and I believed it. Um, about two weeks later, I read an article by Katherine Schultz in The New Yorker and realized I was duped. And I just thought to myself, somebody's going to make the mother of all answer films for this, and I can't wait to watch it. And nobody did. Uh, <laughs> people, they tried, but they didn't. And in the meantime, the prosecutor, special prosecutor Ken Kratz, saw a murder in the park and said, oh my God, these are the first people to ever expose what he termed the innocence industry, which is a cabal of, uh, uh, you know, attorneys who file lawsuits against police, 
journalists and professors. That's if the innocence industry exists, that's that's who it is. And it, it, it's they feed each other uh, cases and money and everything allegedly. Um, so he said, boy, I, I would trust you to make the sequel. You can make my movie. And I said, well, I'm not making your movie, um, but I, I will I will do an answer film. Um, but, you know, it's not your film. You're not going to have any final cut or control of it. Sit for a few interviews. And uh, so that, that's how it happened. That's how that's how I actually got into doing this. And it took six years to do. Wow. Wow. I want to from a from a you, you having had a background in making documentaries, especially documentaries surrounding this very topic, kind of about convictions and wrongful convictions and getting to the the truth um and you know i'm going to use that word just kind of generally because i know it, it it becomes very loaded throughout this process but tell us tell me again or or tell us more about that moment you said you read an article and you realized you had been duped what what became apparent to you and what especially being a documentary tarian bothered you about that Here's the thing that bothered me. The, the thing that changed my mind when I was watching this film, I was like, ah, he's probably guilty. He's got impulse control problems. And then part of me saying, oh, why would he throw away all the money he was probably going to get? Um, the thing that got me was the blood vial. Oh, my God. You know, and, they, and they, they spent an episode on this thing. Yeah. But they never closed the loop. So as a filmmaker at the end, I was like, why didn't they ever come back to that blood vial? Why didn't they, they you know, why didn't they catch whoever you know, pulled that blood out and planted it in his car. I just couldn't understand that. And then I read in that New York New Yorker article that the blood file was a non-issue. Even his own attorneys admitted in speeches after making a murder that the, the, the hole was put in the vial by the person putting in the blood. And uh, that uh, there was EDTA, a preservative, in the blood vial that was not present in the samples that were found in Teresa's car or anywhere else they found blood. So um, it was a non-issue, but they not only did they leave it in, I mean, they left it in knowing that it was a non-issue. And I just, at that point, I was like, boy, that really betrayed my trust. There's, it's implicit that you're seeing, you know, with the documentary, it's, it's implied that you're seeing the truth. And I had yeah. a huge problem with that. And yeah. uh, that's one of many things um, that, that I had a problem with when, with making a murder once we dug in. Yeah, that's that's the the point I was trying to make about part of making the documentary is the idea that you're you're not just telling a story. This isn't fiction. You should be presenting the truth to people. And just to get back to this this point about the blood vial for for listeners so they understand, there is a like you said an almost an entire episode dedicated to the idea that they find this blood vial. It's in evidence. And they believe that somehow it's been tampered with, or you're led to believe that they believe it's somehow been tampered with. And the idea being that someone, and and you you can connect the dots, audience, if you like, that this could be the the nefarious law enforcement officers somehow tampered with it and planted blood, therefore implicating or further implicating Stephen Avery. And your point being they they make you jump to all those conclusions but never close the loop being that the truth is no one really had a problem with this and that's that's the point i was i was trying to make is that you i think more than 
other folks may have been offended by the way that you felt the the original documentary series was made because of the the way that it seemed to manipulate the audience rather than giving them the truth well what they did was they used narrative filmmaking techniques so first it was like oh my gosh the seal is broken on this box well that seal was broken by the innocence project when they tested it you know years after his original conviction then they were like it's a red letter moment uh the uh there's a hole in the blood vial uh this is this is huge and uh, you know it shows the attorneys interacting they knew they knew within an hour there was nothing to that and they left all that in for the sake of so so they're, they're, i understand what they're doing they were serving their audience it was great juicy stuff i was glued to the screen it was like very fulfilling i'm sure endorphins were going off in my head but it wasn't the truth <laughs> it's just yeah. it, it didn't belong anywhere near there and, and here's the here's the thing that kills me documentary filmmakers used to have to beg for money okay it was a lousy business um we'd have to get grants pray that we can get the thing on pbs that who pay you like five thousand bucks okay after you spent two hundred thousand dollars making something it has turned into a fantastic business it's i don't want to screw up the market because we what what happened was when with the polarization of news of everybody saying and they're serving their shareholders i understand why the ceos of fox and msnbc do this but they start taking a side because they realize that they're making more money the choir preaching makes more money than just doing straight news well that opened up the middle for you for me you know for 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 people to just lay out the truth just the straight truth without an angle and um it 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 opened up a market for um long form and deep dive journalism so um to me it's it's a little bit of it's about money and and preserving our our industry and having some sort of you know at the end of the movie it's not like the call to action at the end of the movie is go, go string up these filmmakers or go blow up netflix the call to action is we need to set to to form a voluntary code of ethics as documentary filmmakers and assure the audience hey we didn't get paid by somebody to tell a certain point of view um you know if if, if you are advocating just say you're advocating and who you're advocating for you just we just need a little transparency yeah that to to, to uh comfort the audience let the audience know that the when they sit down to walk watch a documentary they're not going to be handed a narrative they're going to be handed hopefully what's closer to, to true journalism I, I i i really appreciate your way of putting that calling all pop culture enthusiasts are you obsessed with all things celebrity do you live for the drama the laughs and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So you you now have made the decision that you feel that a documentary needs to be made in response to this original series tell us about you said i mean we're talking about 10 episodes nearly an hour each i imagine it's tremendous amount of work you've already alluded to it's a six-year project tell us about that undertaking well we had i think we had 200 hours of footage wow. um not including the trial um which was another god knows how much um 
uh, that we that we had to use to form this and we had to get it to track and we had to use our own filmmaking techniques to get this to to be watchable and um uh we also had to serve people who watched making a murder and not be too redundant and those who didn't to bring them up to speed enough to know what the heck we're talking about so um i had to if you're making a documentary if you don't have access to the subjects you're not gonna you're not gonna make a very good documentary i had to make sure that we could get the law enforcement officers we could get tom fassbender to sit for interviews we could get andy colburn to sit for interviews we could get ken kratz to sit for interviews give their point of view um and uh and you know we also wanted and, and we do talk to people who on both sides who are very passionate about this case and in some cases we show you know how you know how there are people who are slightly deranged from this on both sides you know there are people i mean i, th I think marriages have been broken up over over this thing it's that divisive and this was the first it wasn't the last uh, there was a, a a movie made about the boston marathon bombing that um i mean showed how people were falsely accused and their lives were profoundly affected there was a netflix series don't f with cats um that showed how a redditor group uh drove someone to suicide who had nothing to do with the crime in an attempt to solve the case and find the real killers so this this is a it's not just making a murder this is a real thing but there are just people who you know a cause like this will sort of become their religion they hate when i say that but that's just the the, the best thing i can liken it to and um you know our series changed some people's minds and it was like they may as well have been excommunicated from scientology i mean uh the, the way they lost their friends and and were just just torn to shreds i'm torn to shreds daily on on x you know by stephen avery supporters but I'm, I'm, i've got thick skin and plenty of insulation so that, i can take that it. that is a remarkable uh part of the documentary that you did to me was seeing how and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why you think people have become so divisive on this. But there are people who believe, and, and it, it does seem to skew the, towards the ones who believe he's innocent, are, are just, like you said, it's almost a religion to them how much they believe this and how uh, much anger almost they carry inside to have that questioned in any kind of way. And I thought... That you guys did a marvelous job of interviewing some of these people and kind of kindly pointing out some things they may not have been aware of or or misunderstood but how how was that why do, or why do you think that is people are feel so strongly about this man some random guy out of wisconsin you know murders like this take place in small towns all the time everywhere why is this case and this person so divisive um, someone says in our film it was a, a cultural zeitgeist moment there was a, a ton of anti-police sentiment revolving around Mike Brown hands up don't shoot and Candace the host even says you know did, did white people want their own Mike Brown and there may be something to that uh, hey, we want we went in we want in on being incredulous and 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 being pissed off at the police because it was so cool to hate the cops at the time, um, and 
I think that's part of it. What I think was fascinating, and I don't know if you had a chance to see it, we had a, a psychiatrist, we had a sociologist. These people, they talk about, they study how they, uh, how they handle hearing uh, undisputable truth that goes against their position. And uh, it's fascinating that they, they describe that they'll part, they'll say, okay, they'll give up on that point and they'll partition it out of their head and they'll find something new to, to, to still load that side of the scale. You know, what about this? What about that? What about the computer with porn on it? They have, there's a million of these things. Uh, everybody has their own theories, you know. And uh, I, I keep going back to the religion part. I think, I think that, and, and you know, maybe it sounds presumptuous, but I mean, I think there's a hole in their lives. I really do. I think that they, they that this gives them purpose and meaning, and 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 uh, because when people do, um, we when we do convert somebody, when someone does say, you know, when the, when the head of their Facebook page, the Avery Facebook page, says we've been duped, they're totally deflated. It's like they're getting off heroin, you know, and and uh, so there, there's there's. There's got to be like like addictive qualities to this, and and uh, kind of like uh, like I said, almost a religious affinity. Yeah. And I, I, they, they, you know, they people invested ten hours of their lives into watching that docu series, and some of them invested thousands of hours of their lives in doing follow up research and crowdfunding tens of thousands of dollars to get uh, to to do FOIAs and and get documents and and footage. It's just Freedom of Information Act requests for those who don't know what FOIA is, um, you know, to get more evidence. Look, we found this, and they do find things, you know, that that were overlooked. Because, like my my business partner Andy Hale is an attorney in Chicago who usually defends police, uh, but also sues them. Uh, you know, he's just on the side of the truth. Um, Andy says there are always I's not dotted and T's not crossed. He goes, we call them paperwork problems. It doesn't make the cops guilty of anything. You know, okay, yeah. they forgot to timestamp this. It doesn't make the cops guilty. So um, I, 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 I can't, I didn't give you a very, I, it was very long-winded, but I probably didn't answer your question. It's, it's kind of a we don't know, but we dug into it and, 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 and put forth several theories as to why people are so into it. Yeah, no, a, I, maybe there isn't a simple answer, and I think you did answer it as best you can, It because it, we're talking people beyond like there were there were millions of people who watched the original series I'm, i i like yourself i watched it and i was bothered by some of the things that that are revealed in that original series um i would i was a prosecutor at the time and i remember thinking ah they you did have two juries convict these gentlemen though there was i think we're missing some of the information because if they're hearing only what i'm hearing i've got some major problems with it but it went beyond kind of the casual viewer to, like you said, in in the, the things that you explore in your documentary, people have made this almost their identity. I mean, they, they're part of these groups and they spend their own spare time researching and making requests and just it's become it, 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 their, their, their reason for being, it seems like far beyond than just a casual person who's got some strong opinions on on this documentary. Um, they fly my, in from Wales. They fly in from yeah. Wales, you know, UK, and and buy billboards and put up rewards. I mean, like it's yes, it's it's 
had a profound impact on so many lives. A hundred million people watched Making a Murderer, um, by all accounts. Um, I want to get back to, for a moment, you, you, you've now decided you're going to undertake this and you've realized that there are things that were either, however you want to characterize it, misrepresented, left out. My question to you is, that were, what were the moments as you, this is all becoming clear to you, what were the moments that were most shocking to you as you're making this? I was very shocked by uh, the way they edited some of the depositions. They took, there was one deposition where they made... Uh, you know, like a half a page of audio, and it came from like 27 different pages. I mean, they literally Franken-edited something that wasn't said. And, you know, their excuse for everything is brevity. Right. Um, and, and if brevity is the reason, all the stuff on the cutting room floor shouldn't be things that would have made Stephen Avery look worse. You know, you mentioned the lawsuit of Andrew Colburn suing Netflix. Netflix won that lawsuit. It's a very high standard um, that you have to meet to prove libel and slander. But I, I, I don't know how Colburn lost because I, you can clearly see, I mean, they're written notes showing their intent, make the cops look worse, use more ominous music. Um, you know, the, 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 the intent was there it's, and it's documented. So I just can't believe that Netflix won that case, but that they did. The judge ruled in their favor. Yeah. No, it really begins to offend. I, I, I can see where you would be bothered and offended by it from a documentarian's point of view. It began to offend me from a lawyer's perspective, because if you tried to pull some of this stuff in court, it, you would be ripped apart for it. I mean, the idea of getting up and, and reading a transcript of someone's interview to a, to a person who's testifying and you're only picking and choosing sentences here or there that work in your favor the problem is that the 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 revenge for that the the, the is is swift because then the other attorney gets up and immediately says they just read from you page number 212 i'd like to read to you the rest of that but that wasn't done in this documentary and it leads you when you see so many instances of it to not begin to wonder like you said, is this to make it, you know, in the in for the excuse of brevity, or is this really just trying to push only one side of the view on this whole thing? It's, it's just egregious to me. And yeah. this is all my personal opinion, but I mean, you know, I, I think it's egregious, and I think that this, this 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 our film had to be, or something like our film had to be made. And yeah, do are we are we uh, pro police? I'll tell you right now, we are, because I think they were they were uh, treated extremely unfairly. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to ask you is was there in in your this process in this exploration of this case a, much of this is a a documentary about a documentary but it's also about Stephen Avery and this underlying case was there anything that did trouble you at the end of the day of the investigation of him and, and one thing that's pointed to quite often I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this is the interview of Dassey, the, the, the nephew. A lot of people point towards that and say, here's a young man. He's obviously got some um, de developmental issues and the police are really, you know, playing fast and loose with the rules and the way that they interviewed him. What are your thoughts on that? Or was there anything else in your in this process that did lead you to think to yourself, you know what, I am I am bothered by that aspect of the investigation. 
first of all, making a murderer left out the fact that, that Brendan's mother declined to go in the interview room because she wanted to chain smoke, okay? So that, that, that happened. Second of all, most of the damning statements um, were not, I, I have a, I, those interviews make me terribly uncomfortable. But the superior knowledge theory and the read technique are acceptable police practices. And it's basically how you sell a timeshare. So it is, it's gross. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, they're allowed to lie, they're allowed to lead, but as we pointed out in the film, they intentionally lied about certain things that he fought back on. And they knew they were lying, they were like, you know, what, what tattoo was on her stomach? She didn't have a tattoo. So they did that as to sort of, as a check and balance to prove that, you know, what he was saying, but he, he volunteered tons of things without them leading him. And that's what people overlook. He volunteered an awful lot of information that I think is pretty consistent with what investigators found uh, at, uh, you know, at that property. So um, I'm, I, here's, here's the thing that, I'll tell you what I can't explain. I can't explain the key. Um, yeah. and Ken tell tell us like, about that for, for well, people who Ken, aren't. Okay, there's a, there was a key found and they portray it as being, uh, you know, seven or eight searches in that all of a sudden now they find the key. First of all, the first search was go in there and see if Teresa's in there. So they didn't go and comb through every inch of it. They said, go in there and see if Teresa's in there. Second search, go in there. I think there's a gun on the wall. Get that gun. We want to do ballistics. The gun did match some stuff they found. Um, third search was, uh, you know, for another reason. The, the search in which they found the key was um, to inventory his pornography. So they, he had a lot of pornography and they were just kind of grossed out by it. Um, you know, Colburn told me on the side, he goes, do you want to touch magazines that someone, you know, pleasured themselves to for years and inventory those things? So they were, they were he said he was angry. He didn't want to do it. They inventoried him. He said, I shoved them back in and then it's like, oh, there's a key over there. He goes, I don't know how I got there. I don't know. I, I personally, as the, the filmmaker, I don't know how the key got there. I can't say that, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to believe they didn't plan it. But what Kratz says, and this is sort of how he just, he just plugs this into the equation. He says, I would have won that case without the key. Yeah, that's that's what he says. So they didn't they didn't. He said, why if they were going to plant a key and Fassbender says, you know, why didn't why didn't we find it the first day then? You know, and right. why didn't we park the car in front of his in front of his trailer? You know, why didn't we leave her body in it? Why 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 were her bones pulverized? Does that sound like you know cops? And, and the other thing, let me tell you something else. And you didn't ask this, but I'm going to tell you, these cops they they don't get along. They're not like <laughs> super tight buddies. All right, right. You know, the crats and. Uh, you know, uh, Colburn and Fassbender, they're, they're not all the dynamics are, per they don't have, when I deal with them, I'm like, these aren't guys who are going to like hold secrets for each other. You know, they, they just, right. they, they just wouldn't. Uh, so that the, the, the idea that they, along with dozens of other people uh, committed this conspiracy so that an insurance company wouldn't have to pay a claim is just, just silly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just so that people listening can catch up a little bit with this key the 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 it's a 
huge moment in in the original documentary series but it's this idea that her they had searched his trailer several times and during like you said what the seventh search or so they find her keys the victim's keys to her vehicle inside of that residence and they're found in a fairly open to view uh location and so the 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 logical kind of question then that is exploited by the documentary the making a murderer documentary is that somebody must have put that there there's no way they could have missed that in all of their searches how did that end up there and it, like you said it is a good question it is a it is something that makes you go hmm that does seem odd but i like what you pointed out with what the prosecutor said about is that one he didn't need that to win the case he could have won the case without that and two, it's this idea, and I tried to explain this to jurors when I was a prosecutor. I would do this during voir dire that like anything in life, there are going to be mysteries and questions at the end of all of this. That when you put several people in a room and ask them to analyze a case and there's all these different moving parts, as a prosecutor, you're going to try to do your best to answer all of those questions, but you can't get to every single possible mystery that may arise in someone's mind and something mm-hmm. like this that key may just be hey it's weird but they missed it and that's that and there's nothing nefarious behind it and they're like you said they're if they wanted to plan it they could have done it a, a, a thousand different ways that would have been far better than the way that it, it, it they eventually ended up finding it and at the end of the day it's just one of those mysteries Everybody wants it. Every, everybody wants that that wrap up like the end of a, an episode of CSI, where oh, now yeah. this all makes perfect sense. You don't get that. You, you seldom get that. Just just on people's varying recollections alone. You know, witnesses yeah. um, having different stories. You know, that, that it's 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 tough to prosecute cases. I'm sure. Yeah. When you're you're getting differing accounts. Andy Hale yeah. has a saying. Andy Hale, who often defends police. Uh, and defends uh, Cook County and the state and the city of Chicago against these uh, lawsuits. He said, um, recants are a dime a dozen. He said, you know, a 10 year old girl who told the truth when she was 10 is 24. She's friends with the daughter of the guy who was put away and she has the power now to possibly help him. And she says, you know, maybe, I I, I guess I'm not totally sure now. And they'll, they'll, they'll let some out based on a recant like that. You know that, that that that's that's weak. That's weak. Yeah. Recants are a dime a dozen. They're, they're, you can find a someone to recant in every case if you work on them. So that's people should not be released over over. Uh, I mean, there has to be more than just kind of a half, you know, half warm recant to to yeah. let somebody out of prison. That's why I'm yeah. glad the innocence the innocence project, the real one, um, uh, in New York City, they they're DNA only, and that's that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Let's um let's talk a little bit about um th- so this documentary is released right now by the Daily Wire and I wanted to talk about how did how was it that they got involved um Candace Owens is I don't know if you want to call her the host but she's uh a, a figure that's interviewed throughout the documentary series. She is uh a, a, a person who could be described as controversial. I'm curious as to how all of that came about and has it has it in any way changed the reception you think of the documentary? 
It may have changed how many people saw it. I mean, you have to subscribe to the Daily Wire to watch it. Um, I think it's worth it. I was a Daily Wire subscriber before I ever met those folks. Um, but a lot of people uh, differ politically uh, and wouldn't want to support that organization, I'm sure. Um, uh, that's unfortunate because this is not a political movie. And, you know, they can join and binge the whole thing and, and, and drop their subscription two days later if they want. Um, but we we had a lot of people tell us this was a great story. We had a lot of people tell us that millions and millions of people will watch it. And they said, but it's not going to air here. When Dallas Saunier called us after watching the screeners, he goes, hey, this is great. We want it. We thought he was with Fox. We, okay, we can deal with that. And when we found out it was a Daily Wire, we were like, You're, you can never afford this. You can never afford what we need to get for this, for, for the six years of work and the millions of dollars we put into it. And uh, they stepped up. And he said, this is about culture. We like dealing with culture. And he said, but we just have to brand it uh, with, with our talent. And I think that Candace Owens is the right person for this. And um, I went and we, we had like 16 hours of meetings with just Candace and I and a couple of Candace's uh, team. And uh, she said she wanted to do it. She said, but I want to change it. And she went to a whiteboard and laid out, laid out all her changes. And I said, okay. I didn't give up final cut, but I accepted a lot of her changes. Um, she didn't like some of the artsiness. You know, we like to disorient people and then kind of let them figure it out. And then that's very fulfilling when, you, when you're watching something. She's like, just say it. You know, so it's, it's very, very much more direct uh, than it was when we had our original cut. And I think, you know, it's the first time we ever added a layer of commentary. Um, and I think pe as long as people know it's commentary, I still think the, f the film speaks for itself. And the other thing is, whoever was going to take this to the public was going to catch a lot of grief. And she could care less about catching a lot of grief. Yeah. She, she, it happens all the time. Uh, she thrives uh, in those circumstances. So there, in retrospect, I didn't think about it at the time, but there was really no better person. I, I think it worked out perfectly. And, you know, this isn't the end. There, it's, there may be uh, there may be other ways to watch it uh, for people in other countries and you know down the line. So we'll see what happens here in twenty twenty four. Fantastic. Well, um, the my last question on this, and we kind of alluded to this, is um, I think there's many ways to view this documentary. I think you could view it as you know kind of righting a wrong. I think you can view it as a documentary about a documentary. Uh, or a documentary about uh, this overall crime story that took place in a small county in Wisconsin. Uh, but I'm curious as to what what do you hope this documentary speaks to? What do you hope it's, it is the impact of convicting a murderer? I, I hope that people don't believe documentaries at face value and they check everything out for themselves. Uh, and and, and my, my funny, smart aleck way that I wanted to market this was a popular meme a couple of years ago that says, here, we fixed it. <laughs> I, I, I like to think, you know, we, we crossed out the making a murder, wrote convicting a murder, and here we fixed it. I, you know, people, truthers still think, you know, we're, we're horribly biased and shills for the police. They're just, they're, there's no changing their minds. We didn't make it for them. 
We made it for the general public. Somebody like me who didn't read the New Yorker article and still walking around thinking, damn, maybe those cops are dirty. And, yeah. you know, wow, how did that happen in the United States of America? So that's who we made it for, the general public. Yeah. And we want to just get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible now. Well, it's fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview, but I, I, I will say that after watching it, I think it does an amazing job of not, not trying to be a counterpoint and saying, hey, here's all the stuff that we think shows why Avery is guilty, but just doing what probably the first documentary should have done the first time around, which is showing the truth on both sides on how do you answer this evidence? Here's some problems. Here's some answers to those problems. Uh, and doing it in a in a what I feel is a very even-handed way and a very thoroughly entertaining way. And if you enjoyed uh, making a murderer, I think you'll enjoy this convicting a murderer even more. Sean, thank you again so much for your time and for coming on. Um, where can people watch the documentary now? And then where can they find out more about you and your, your the work of yours? Okay, well, I'm. I, I... You can go to transitionstudios.com and see all of our projects. We have a lot more coming out in 2024, um, including one on the killing of the nuns in El Salvador in 1980, um, that, which has a Cleveland connection because a couple of the, the nuns were from Cleveland. Um, that's called uh, The Killing of Sister Dorothy. But uh, if you go to transitionstudios.com, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, just under my name, Sean Reck, S-H-A-W-N-R-E-C-H. Um, we own a streaming service called True Blue. If you go to watch trublu.com, Chris Hansen and I both uh, own that network and have uh, restarted the Catch a Predator shows under the name Takedown with Chris Hansen. That's why my, that's why my sleeve says, have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go to watch trublu.com uh, uh, we have a, a 24-7 network now on Roku um, channel 528 I think on Roku we're on Plex we're on TCL Plus we're coming on Vizio soon um, so uh, you can you can watch our content there um, and uh, you know a lot more coming in the future but I really appreciate you having me on Joshua Oh, absolutely. This was a pleasure. I, I, I know we only kind of scratched the surface, but I appreciate your time. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ASQ, and you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.